Word again with you, and uh, I trust it'll be a blessing to you. If you don't have the notes yet, anyone without notes, do we need to run a mission of mercy? Okay, we're good. All right, uh, we ha- I have an objective, a purpose, something I want to accomplish by the end of the message. It's a good thing to have that in mind when you get started, isn't it? But uh, it's to so- as much as to say we're going to be covering specific things in certain ways so that we can get to where we hope to be by the end of our time together. The Great Commission is, of course, where evangelism starts so far as New Testament Christianity is concerned. So let's go to, uh, to Matthew chapter 28. We'll go to Acts in just a few minutes. But first of all, we want to go to Acts chapter, I keep saying that, to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. The core verse of what is known as the Great Commission And this will be our launch off point this evening. Verse 19, Matthew chapter 28 says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Here we have what is called the Great Commission, and so I'll put it up as the Great Command, since we didn't want to be redundant there, Great Commission and Great Commission two times in a row. Great Commission evangelism is based on a Great Command. Now, the interesting thing about that command here in Matthew chapter 28 is that the first command form in the verse is not the one you think is the first one. The word go is not actually an imperative. It is what's called a participle, but they tell us in uh, studies of grammar that it has imperatival force. So I just thought you might want to know that so you can impress someone a little bit later on. Uh, so it doesn't really have a direct translation as go ye into all the world, but it is certainly a part of Christ's purpose that we go, and uh, we see that played out throughout the New Testament. You could, though, translate this phrase as you go into all the world. There is an assumption that we will be moving out from a specific point. The disciples, for example, there in Jerusalem as we get started in the narrative in the book of the Acts, but eventually they will continue on beyond that point and be where we are today where the witness of the gospel has gone into all parts of the world. Not all parts have been equally evangelized. We understand that. There is still need of further evangelism today. But the point is that God has ways of getting us where He wants us to be. And so the going is kind of something that God takes care of, though He wants us to be aware of it. The command in the verse is to make disciples, to teach all nations, as it is translated there in verse 19. Make disciples in all nations. So as we move forward out into the world, our objective is to produce or reproduce followers of Jesus Christ who will then be able to take the Great Commission to another step of obedience in another part of the world or with another group of people. Making disciples then is a very important thing. How do we accomplish that? Well, the passage here gives us some clear directives, and if we compare all of the Great Commission uh, passages, we come up with basically three separate items. First, Making disciples count is predicated upon our evangelizing the lost. Giving the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
to everyone who does not yet enjoy, first of all, the knowledge, but also then the participation in that message of hope and salvation. So evangelizing the lost is certainly a part of that. This church is here in this community with that objective as well. We want to glorify God first and foremost, and we do that by evangelizing the lost, but then there's another step, and that would be baptizing believers, as is mentioned here in verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Why do we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Because God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. So, whether we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, we're talking about one God. But in order to, uh, get, to get that truth fully out to people, we start in the evangelism process and then in the baptizing process, letting people know who God is and how God has revealed Himself. So, we baptize believers then in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then there's another element that's mentioned here in verse 20, and that says teaching them to observe all things. It's not the same word that's teach up in verse 19, the beginning of that verse. This verse is, this word is indoctrinating them. Teaching believers what? To obey Jesus Christ. Now, when this passage says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, is it referring to going out with a red-letter edition of the Bible and only teaching the words that are in red? Is that what we're supposed to do? No. Because the words of Christ are all the words that are in Scripture. We're to instruct people as to how they are to obey God and how they are to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior, and honestly, with the, within the, the, the Trinity, the person that we seem to have the most direct communication with, this is perception, it's not actual reality, but that person would be Jesus Christ because He loved us and gave Himself for us, right? So it's natural that we would feel that kind of affinity. We're supposed to develop that for the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. They are equally God. But it is Jesus Christ who has that redemptive focus on Him throughout Scripture, so, as we're going through all the world, we're trying to accomplish specific things in order to make disciples. A disciple is not fully a disciple if he is evangelized but not instructed in the ways of righteousness. A person is not truly made a disciple if they are not instructed regarding baptism. And they're not truly a disciple if they have not learned what it is that they must do as obedient servants of Jesus Christ. All of these things are important. Salvation is possible without number two and three, but discipleship, full discipleship is what I'm saying, is not, as, is not possible if the person is not fully instructed as Scripture commands that they be. So, moving out from the great command, we have some fulfillment of that in Scripture the great proclamation, we'll call this, and we're going to just highlight two passages. You can turn to the book of the Acts, but I'm not really going to read so much from these passages as just remind us of what goes on in these passages. Now, you have there in your notes, right under Acts chapter 2, filling of the 
In other words, what are the disciples filled with in Acts chapter 2? Who can help me? The Holy Spirit, that is absolutely correct. So, the filling of the Spirit is what happens there in, in Acts chapter 2. Jesus had promised that this would occur when He was with the disciples in the upper room, giving them those final instructions, and He told them that they were to wait there in Jerusalem until they were given power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 also repeats that instruction so that they would have the power of God upon them through the person of the Holy Spirit. Well, as a result of the Spirit's filling, then Peter becomes the spokesman for the group. And if you were here a few months ago when I spoke on this subject, Peter preaches, and what are the other disciples, apostles doing? Who can help us? Somebody said something, and I, I talked over you. I'm sorry. Sure, they're gathered together, but in Acts chapter 2, when they're out in front of everyone, what, what, what's everyone else doing while Peter preaches? Translating. They're translating. We have at least 15 different people groups that are mentioned there in Acts chapter 2, and each of them says, how is it that each of us hears the gospel message in the language in which we were born? God is very interested in people hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ in their heart language, the language they grew up speaking, the language with which they identify themselves. It's very important. You realize that's part of why the New Testament was written in Greek and not Hebrew? Why was that? because relatively few people were speaking Hebrew at that point. And virtually no Gentiles were speaking Hebrew at that point. And the purpose of God was to give this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to as much of the world as possible, and so Greek being as close to a world language as was possible in that time became the language of choice of God's Holy Spirit to bring this message of the gospel into inscripturated form. And then we have translation work from then on, and even till today, it's still going on, and it still needs to go on so that people, regardless of where they live, have an opportunity to clearly understand what God wants them to know regarding the salvation of their souls. An amazing thing happens there in Acts chapter 2. As a whole bunch of people place their faith in Jesus Christ. Anyone remember how many? About 3,000 people. 3,000 converted and baptized. Imagine that day. Imagine baptizing that many people. Well, Peter didn't baptize them all. It's unlikely that even the, tw the uh, 12 apostles baptized all 3,000. It's very likely that it, the duty was subdivided, and it's interesting that off the southern side of the Temple Mount, there are all sorts of baptismal pools. They were enclosed to provide for modesty. And so, in those little enclosures, it's likely that baptisms occurred and that the 3,000 people were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. An amazing thing. It could have been done in a relatively short period of time with a lot of people being involved in it. But all of that to say that this is the kickoff point, this proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but this isn't where it stops. Not by a long shot. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are going up to the temple by way of the beautiful gate, 
and they find there a man who has been lame from birth. He's begging, he's asking people for money. His thought is, what better place to be than the temple in order to ask people for money because they're looking for ways to serve God and serve others, so I'll put myself in the place of blessing. That's what the lame man does. As Peter and John approach him, Peter says, I don't have silver and I don't have gold. I have something far better. So look at me. Now in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Scripture says that Peter reached out his hand and the man literally leaped off of the ground and then grabs Peter and John by the shoulders and runs into the temple area, up onto the temple mount with them, and begins to yell and to, to run about telling everyone that he has been healed and drawing a crowd together to Peter and John. And there Peter preaches, as the lame man is healed, Peter preaches on Solomon's porch. Now, what was Solomon's porch? I'm going to show you a little bit of sort of an artistic rendering of what and where Solomon's porch is and where, what it has to do with. Over here to my right, I'm going to, going to use the pointer if I can get it. There we go. This is the temple mount, this whole structure. This would be the temple itself facing east. And here on the south side is this enclosure, this enclosed colonnade. That is Solomon's porch. This is believed to be very close to what it looked like at the time of Christ. This is a replica or a model of Herod's temple. It's on a very small scale, but it makes it look big if you take the picture just the right way. So uh, that's what we've done. Anyway, so they would have all been gathered over in this area and everyone's from this that's in this enclosure area is going to be drawn to this area by the commotion. They're not literally going into the temple. They would have been killed had they tried. But when it says they went into the temple, we're to understand they went onto the temple mount from these southern steps down here, and you see what looks like little boxes here. These are the stairways opening from the southern steps into the temple mount itself, allowing people access there to a place of worship. So, what's the result of this preaching of the gospel? Anyone recall from Acts chapter 3? Some more people respond. We're told that the number of the people who had professed faith in Jesus Christ, well, there, I have an arrow so that you can see Solomon's porch. I forgot I put that in there. There it is. Isn't that handy? All right, so we're back to Peter. How many people are trusting Christ? Some people say this is a composite from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 3, and some people say, no, this is just the results apparently of what happened in Acts chapter 3. 5,000 profess faith in Jesus Christ. Amazing. If that's an additional 2,000 to what happened in Acts chapter 2, or if this is an additional 5,000 in any, either case, it's phenomenal growth. I've been asked about the Spanish ministry, which we started three weeks ago, and how that's going. And I would let you know that we did not have 5,000 yet. Just wanted to be clear on that, okay? Uh, we've steadily gone a little bit downhill, but that's not to be, uh, that's not unexpected. It's not surprising to us. And as I told people for the first service, if no one even came, it didn't change the mission. It didn't change the objective. 
So we're not focused exclusively on numbers, but we are eager to see people come. This past Sunday, we had two people who had never been with us before. Uh, and each Sunday, that's been true. So that gives us additional contacts and possibility of seeing the ministry grow as we have more contacts with people. And I'm going to recruit some of you tonight to help me make more contacts. That's just an aside. It's just a note, okay? Keep it in mind. Not only do we have a great command and great proclamation, we also see throughout the book of Acts here, the early chapters, great persecution. Whenever God is really actively doing something of value within humankind, what always happens? Satan always rears his ugly head. He doesn't like that God gets his way. God always does get his way, though. Satan, you'd think, would have learned that by now. But he provokes opposition. First off, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, as a result of healing this lame man, are drawn before the Sanhedrin to answer for the commotion that they've caused on the Temple Mount. Because there was probably something going on in Solomon's porch that was interrupted when the lame man decided that everyone should know that he had been healed. So they're called into question, and Peter and John, well, Peter is primarily the spokesman, it appears. He doesn't worry about the fact that these guys are really important. He gives them the gospel and lays the fault of the death of Christ squarely at their feet. He did that in Acts chapter 2 to the nation assembled. But now he does it right there in Acts chapter 4 in this council chambers where they could really face some serious repercussions. That doesn't matter. It's sort of what Christ had told the disciples. Don't worry what you should speak when you have this opportunity of being called before kings and before other rulers, because I will put words into your mouth. These are God's words that Peter is saying. And though they are attacking words, God's on the attack. It's not Peter on the attack. And it is the honor of God and the plan of God that Peter is defending. Then in Acts chapter 5, we have another situation where the apostles, plural, are arrested, and then they're freed by an angel. God says, oh yeah, you can put them in jail, but I'm going to control if and when anything else happens. Those were amazing times to be a believer, to know that God's power is being demonstrated almost on a daily basis. And some try to recreate Acts chapter 2 every Sunday. You really can't do that because Acts chapter 2 is a one-time event. It may happen. It may foreshadow a coming event in the time of the tribulation, but we're not to expect that God's Holy Spirit will descend on people in such a way that they speak in a multitude of languages on every, time, every Sunday morning when we gather together. It's just not God's plan to do that thing every time. It's also not God's plan to heal a lame person every Sunday to just to try to draw a crowd. And unfortunately, many of what, much of what is supposedly an imitation or a recreation of these events is nothing but a fraud. And that's provable time and time and time again. But here is an amazing thing. In the middle of all of this blessing, there is opposition, and it doesn't stop here. In Acts chapter 7, we actually have the first Christian martyr. Stephen is martyred. 
for preaching the truth. And again, he lays the fault, the guilt for the death of Jesus Christ squarely at the feet of his own people, and particularly the leaders of the people who, who got the whole multitude roused up to accomplish this purpose of God. Yes, the death of Jesus Christ was ultimately the purpose of God. And Peter makes that very clear, as, or Stephen makes that very clear as well. They did what God had planned. And then you have Acts chapter 8. And this is where Scripture says that Saul of Tarsus ravaged the church. Literally, he decimated the church. He went into differing areas in Israel and literally dragged away people who professed faith in Jesus Christ. And it made it a very challenging time for people to try to continue to obey Jesus Christ. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. We've kind of been heading this direction all the time. And this is where I wanted to start reading again. We'll start in verse 1 where Scripture says, And Paul was consenting unto his, that is Stephen's death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So the question I have for you is, who exactly was scattered abroad according to this verse? Acts 8 verse 1. If it wasn't the apostles, then who was scattered abroad? Believers. Normal, ordinary, unordained believers. People who had been made disciples of Jesus Christ, as we saw earlier in the Great Commission model. Individuals who knew Jesus Christ personally in salvation. Many of them had actually met Him and conversed with Him in the flesh. But these were people whose lives had been changed by their exposure to the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had truly become His disciples. So here we have the Great Commission continuing forward, and we want to highlight that so we have great evangelism in spite of the great persecution which we saw. Verses 2 and 3 of our text here, Acts chapter 8, tell us of the burial of Stephen. And then verse 3, as, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church. He ravaged the church, entering into every house and hailing. That word literally means dragging away men and women and committed them to prison. Verse 4 then builds on the last phrase of verse 1, and it says, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad... My memory's short. Who was scattered abroad? Believers. believers, thank you. The same believers we were talking about in verse 1. Which group of believers are by name exempted from this being scattered abroad? The apostles. So the apostles are where? They're in Jerusalem. A bunch of the believers are scattering out throughout the world. Why? Because Saul is on the rampage. You see, it isn't always spirituality to stay and face persecution. Sometimes God says, scram, move out, take the gospel with you somewhere else. Sometimes it's God's will for us to stand and face persecution. We never run because we're abandoning the faith. We only run in order to be able to share that faith with someone else. So we have the believers following this example. Now, there's something I would like to point out. The scattered believers are the ones preaching the Word, as you've correctly identified, 
And so that implies several things about those individual believers who are not the apostles. And those things would be, first of all, they took the Great Commission personally. You think that's accurate? Am I stretching a point? No. They took it personally so that when they were scattered abroad, they just did what Christ had told them to do. What else can we conclude by that from this? They evangelized by telling what they knew about Jesus Christ. I have chosen to put this point in these words for a specific purpose. That purpose is to highlight the fact that the believers did not take this with them. They did not have an old Schofield, Oxford edition of the Holy Bible. They didn't have a Greek New Testament. They didn't have a Hebrew Old Testament. They didn't have a Greek Old Testament. It had been translated by then. They went out and just told what they knew about the person who had transformed their lives. You see, I make that point because sometimes we say, I just can't ever remember where those verses are that we're supposed to use for people to get saved. If you can't remember where the verses are found, imagine these believers who didn't even have them written down. I mean, the Romans wrote, from, the book of Romans hadn't even been written yet. Didn't bother them. They still knew that somebody had changed their lives and that that obligated them to give that message of hope and salvation to other people. These people simply told what they knew about Jesus Christ. And I would submit that every one of us who, here who knows Jesus Christ as our Savior is prepared, is qualified to do just the same thing. Now, we do have the Bible and we should have some command of some of the verses and be able to share something with people that comes directly from the Bible. But even if you can't remember the specific verse, you can tell what you know about Jesus Christ. And we need to be doing that. Another interesting thing about these believers is that they did this obedience without organization or leadership. Why do you think I put there without organization or leadership? Who has a good idea? Why did I put that phrase there? They shared the gospel of Jesus Christ without organization or leadership. You don't need it. Okay, you don't need it. I think that's a good point. Absolutely. Amen. So why did these believers not have or require leadership? Good. Leadership of the Holy Spirit. What's the key point? Remember Acts chapter 8, last phrase, verse 1. Acts 8, well, I think somebody would just quote Matthew 28, 20, weren't you? Lord, I'm with you all the way, even to the end of the earth. <laughs> That's true, too. But Acts chapter 8, everyone that was scattered abroad did not include the apostles, the leaders. That's why I said they're without organization or leadership. This wasn't an organized exit plan. Okay, group A of believers, you're going to Macedonia. Group B, you're headed to Antioch. If you get confused about this, get your buddy Make sure that you know where your, where your buddy is. They didn't do any of this. They just simply left 
And as they left the area of concentrated persecution, they shared the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ without organization or leadership. There wasn't a Tuesday night church calling program planned. It was just wherever you go, whenever you go, share the message. And now I'm just going to give you a little bit of a capsulized form very quickly of a couple of other passages in the book of Acts of this evangelism. Philip takes the gospel to Samaria in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Not only that, a, few, a little bit later, we find him reaching the Ethiopian eunuch. Same chapter, a little bit later down in the, in the passage. So the gospel's continuing forward. We have Peter then preaching to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. That took some prodding by the Holy Spirit to get him to do that, didn't it? That's an interesting discussion. Acts chapter 13 as well, we have Paul and Barnabas commissioned to be missionaries. And so the gospel continues forward. So, they didn't have the leadership, they didn't have the organization, they just simply did what they were supposed to do. And in conclusion, I want us to look at what you have right there, but I'm going to add a little bit to it. Each of us is responsible to fulfill the Great Commission. Each of us should take personally that message that's given to us by Christ. In other words, there's no special calling needed in order to fulfill the Great Commission in my own personal life. I just need to do it. Anywhere and everywhere we go, there are opportunities to give out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we need to maximize those opportunities. To be a little bit more specific, Lebanon needs us all to be faithful. There's a need for faithfulness in reaching out to those who are around us. Now, I have a suggestion for you to help us all do this a little bit better. You could make up a literature packet, such as I have right here in my hand, and begin to distribute that it doesn't take all that much effort, and they have a nice little handy hole here. What, does you suspect, what do you suspect is the purpose of that hole? To put it on a doorknob? Exactly. Uh, let me just put on the uh, a disclaimer here. The U.S. Post Office has determined that they own your mailbox and the mailbox of your neighbor. Don't put this in a mailbox. It has no stamp on it. They get very upset, Okay. They think they own that. So let's not put that in. We don't want to violate law. We put it on the doorknob, in the door, uh, behind the mailbox, if it's mounted to the wall, hanging from the, the newspaper hook underneath the mailbox. That's legitimate. The post office hasn't taken ownership of that. So any one of those places you could put it, you can lay it on a chair that's on the porch. You can hang it on the gate that's in front of the house. And I just broke the bottom of the bag. How did I do that? Quality plastic. I have another one. I came prepared. What do I have in this literature packet? I'll show you here in a few moments. I'm not just going to hold it up in front of you. I have one church brochure that happens to be facing you right now. Right? I also have one announcement concerning the Spanish ministry. Why? Because a large percentage of people that live in Lebanon happen to speak Spanish. Okay? And then I also have one English track in here, which you can't necessarily see. That was what fell out of the other packet. And one Spanish track. It basically all looks like this, okay? Here we have the church brochure, the Spanish invitation, English track, Spanish track. The English track and Spanish track are not 
it doesn't matter exactly what, which one it is as long as it's a gospel track. And uh, we have some and we've ordered more so that those will be available. How hard do you think it is to put this pack together? Not real hard unless you consider the fact of the uh, absolutely rebellious nature of plastic. Okay? Because when you try to stick this invitation that right now won't come out, when you try to put that in, it gets interesting. You can't just jam it. What I've found is good is you kind of roll it. And then you stick it in, and then you go to open the bag. And then you hold it, blow down in there, and it goes right to the bottom. You say, oh, that's silly. No, that works. That's what that is. That works. And then I take the rest of the packet, the two English tracks, put it behind one church brochure. The church brochure is facing out the other side. I kind of wiggle and jiggle until I get it down behind this invitation. And there you have the packet. You can make up. What's really amazing is it takes you an hour or so to put together 50 or 100 of these things, depending if you have help. And it only takes you an hour to hand out all that you prepared. And you say, I thought I prepared for two days. This is a great way to do it. Now, consult me. Consult Pastor Fox. We'll tell you what streets to cover. How many of you think you can, might be able to do some of that? Maybe you can't walk, but you can bag, you can bag the, uh, the invitations and whatever. How many of you think you are linguistically qualified to hang these on a doorknob? <laughs> of Spanish speakers. Yes, you are linguistically qualified to hang it on a doorknob. If you find someone that wants a conversation and you can't speak to them, you just simply point to the last line of this invitation, and there's a phone number, and it says, he speaks Spanish. It's my phone number, and I'll be glad to talk to him. Well, I think I've overstayed my welcome. I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Art. There you are. He was about to hit the trap door. I see that. So thank you so much for your help, and... Uh, Hey, if you want to be involved in this, let me know. We'll get you clued in.